Today on the podcast, Big Law went on a hiring spree last year. Is it about to go on a firing spree? If you're a lawyer, you could be forgiven for being frustrated by this turnabout. Is it time to blow up the entire industry starting with its bedrock, the billable hour? Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. We're in volatile times economically, and that's definitely true for the legal industry, maybe doubly so. 2021 was a record-shattering year for many firms, thanks to a huge wave of business deals and IPOs, which themselves were fueled by ultra-low interest rates. Hey, remember those? With the easy money era very, very much over, corporate America is starting to go into hibernation. And that means there's just not as much work for firms to do. And now we're seeing the results of that. Some of the biggest names in law are laying off attorneys, and more layoffs are expected next year, including so-called stealth layoffs, where a firm blames the firing on an annual performance review to hide the fact that actually it's just trying to balance the books. It's a bad situation, and you'd be forgiven for wondering whether big law learned any lessons at all from its last downturn in the late 2000s and the early 2010s. Maybe the industry just needs to be pulled up from the roots and remade, starting with that pesky billable hour that everyone hates. Bloomberg Law video producer Macarena Carrizosa just made a video about the billable hour pay system and whether replacing it is even possible, and if it is, whether that's a good idea. But first, we're going to hear more about those layoffs from Bloomberg Law reporter Megan Tribe. Well, so far, you know, we've heard and confirmed that there have been layoffs at Cooley, Kirkland and Ellis, uh, and um, most recently at Gunderson. But we've also heard unconfirmed rumors of layoffs at several other AMLA 50 firms over the last couple weeks and months. I have to admit, I was not surprised to see Cooley and Gunderson Detmer in your story since they're really tied to the tech industry and you know, as everyone probably knows, the tech industry right now is struggling a lot. I was surprised to see Kirkland and Ellis, uh, which is one of the biggest firms in the country, maybe the biggest. Why are they on this list of people who are laying people off? Do you have any sense of what's going on there? Well, so many of the people that I've spoken with and that my colleagues colleagues have spoken with have really tied all of these layoffs to overhiring that took place over the last two years, more or less. Um, so many of these firms, like Kirkland, had a tidal wave of work. You know, we're talking, you know, M&A work that had never been seen before, a SPAC market that was completely bonkers, um, as well as IPOs. So they had all of this work, but not enough bodies to do it. So they went to the lateral market to find this associate talent to plug into the deals to get it done. But now that, you know, the IPO market has fallen off dramatically, SPAC work has pretty much all but stalled. Um, and M&A work is starting to slow. There's just not enough work for these folks to do. I wonder if this could have been avoided or prevented. You know, whenever I hear overhiring, I think, well, you know, if you didn't overhire, then you wouldn't have to lay people off. But in this case, it sounds like I don't know if this could have been prevented because, as you mentioned, you know, there was more work than these firms could handle last year. So they had to hire a lot of people and now they're just less. I mean, is is this something that, that these firms could have done by better planning or was it unavoidable? You know, that's a really, really interesting question. And, and one that I think that one of the big questions I think to come from all of this is could we have do- could we have done something differently? You know, in 2008, when law firms laid off a bunch of, you know, I mean, really just a tidal wave of folks after 
the global markets collapsed, you know, there was this question of what can we do differently? And I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway in chatting with some folks, recruiters, et cetera, you know, saying, you know, that's kind of the biggest lesson that firms can learn is how could we do things differently next time? You know, but I don't have an answer for that right now is a short way of saying that. Um, you know, I think law firm leaders and practice heads used their best judgment in, in bringing aboard folks. And, and there was stiff competition for talent. I mean, we have to think back to a lot of things that firms were doing to entice associates, corporate associates to join them. We were talking about signing bonuses in the six figures in addition to several series of bonuses that were being handed out to associates, in addition to salary increases. So there was a lot of competition for the top talent and for firms to get that top talent to be able to do all of this work. Um, So I think that after kind of everything shakes out and there's kind of a return to, to normal, which is, you know, what a lot of people are saying that this is, given that the last, you know, two years have kind of been a little crazed, I think there's going to be room for contemplation to see, you know, what is the best way um, to adjust hiring policies going forward. And I think that firms are being more agile in that. And, um, you know, that's really interesting to see. I'm glad you brought up the 2007-2008 financial crisis because uh, I think that was, uh, you know, a time that even people who weren't in the industry know that it was a really bad time to be a lawyer, you know, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Mm-hmm. The people that you spoke with s- said, we're not in for that again. This this doesn't look like a repeat of that. Why are they more optimistic this time? Um, You know, I think it just goes back, if you look at the market right now, it's just, you know, 2008 was really just kind of a spectacular collapse on, on a global scale. We're just not seeing that right now, you know, Though M&A has slowed, it's not really, if you look, it's slowed compared to last year. Last year was a boom time. And I think a lot of people, you know, are comparing the numbers and saying, yes, it's down, but down compared to a time when it was just completely off the charts. So a lot of people that I've spoken with um, have said this is kind of a return to normal. And while corporate work might be down, litigation is picking up. Law firms are still hiring. You know, they're hiring, you know, litigation, IP work. Um, So there's still a demand for services, unlike 2008, where it was just kind of, (laughs) you know, um, I don't want to say completely dire, but, you know, more dire. We are still seeing, you know, things humming along. and, And I think that, you know, despite these layoffs, you know, it's kind of a return to normal. But it sounds like what you're saying, kind of reading between the lines, is that these firms are still at the mercy of the demand for legal services. I was, when I asked that that previous question, I was wondering if you'd be like, well, they, you know, learned a lot of lessons and they did things differently after the financial crisis. But it sounds like the reason why things aren't that bad is just because things aren't that bad. You know, is there anything <laughs> that, that that law firms haven't put in place that you know themselves to proactively prevent that? You know, I do think that law firms learned um, a fair amount of lessons from 2008. And one of them was, um, you know, speaking specifically to hiring, was they canceled all of their summer classes. Um, you know, the, the pipeline from law school to law firms really kind of stalled. Not all, but but some. And I think that they've learned that they can't do that again, because what ended up happening was you had this um, kind of void of talent, this young talent that you needed to cultivate 
And we saw kind of the product of that in 2021, where there were just no mid-levels to do this work. So they needed to go to the lotto market to bring these folks in. You know, we've been hearing over and over again that summer classes are, you know, at some firms record level, you know, (laughs) at record levels. Um, So I think they learned that they really cannot stop that pipeline from coming in, you know, and, and I think you know, outside of one instance, we haven't heard any delays of summer cl- or bringing on first years. You know, if anything, we've heard that they're going to expand classes. Um, so, you know, I do think that they've learned some lessons <laughs> from the past. Um, okay. And, and it's, it's interesting we'll give them, to see. We'll give them credit for that. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Okay. Well, you know, let's think about this more holistically and sort of talk about, you know, why the legal industry is the way it is. And with that, I want to turn to uh, Maka here. Um, You know, you just did a video on the billable hour and why it's still around, even though it's so hated. So many people, you know, just can't stand it. You know, why? how did we arrive at this? How did the legal industry start using the billable hours the way that it works? So the legal industry didn't really use um, the billable hour before the 70s. That was one of the things that really surprised me about the video is that the 70s is not that long ago. I thought it had been around for a lot longer. Yeah, you're right. Like, it's not that long ago. And so before that, lawyers used to bill by a sort of combination of fixed fees and contingent fees. They had this whole... There's this whole history bit that we go through in the video, which talks about how at first states placed caps on how much lawyers could charge. That was all the way back in the 1800s. But then by the 30s and 40s, lawyers complained that dentists and doctors were out earning them. They needed more money. Got to to keep pace with the dentists. Exactly. They started getting uh, minimum fees. But then in 1975, the Supreme Court ruled that caps and minimum fees were price fixing. So lawyers had more freedom about how they could bill. They didn't have to bill a minimum or a maximum. And at the same time, clients started demanding more transparency about how lawyers were using their time. Um, General counsel became more sophisticated so they could really understand um, the work being done better. And so they wanted to see it. They wanted to see how lawyers were spending their time and make sure that they deserve to be paid these fees. I think, you know, a lot of people point to the billable hour as the primary reason why the legal industry is so brutal. I mean, I think I can kind of guess why that is. But can you explain that and go into that a little bit more about why this makes it just miserable for everyone, but particularly for women, for uh, and especially women with small children? Yes. So the billable hour had an upside as well for for lawyers, right? Despite the fact that you have to record how you use your time in six minute increments even. Six uh, minutes? Six minutes. <laughs> Despite that you have to do all that work, um, it's very profitable. So law firms pressure lawyers to bill a lot of hours. Yeah, you, you talk about one person uh, in the video who billed more than 3,000 hours. I think the maximum I billed one year was 3,500 or 3,600 hours. I just taught myself how to get by on an hour or an hour and 45 minutes of sleep a night. And to do that day in and day out over years and years and years, you begin to have a real disassociation from what I would consider to be real life. 
if you think about, you know, just the math on that and how many hours there are in a year, uh, that's insane. I'll just, I mean, that's crazy. Three, more than 3,000 hours a year. And keep in mind that this is billable hours. This does not include non-billable work. So when you go use the restroom, have a coffee break, talk to someone in the office, um, answer an internal email that isn't really billable for a client. Or, you know, sleep. <laughs> or sleep. Eat. Um, do things that humans tend to do. Exactly. So what this leads to, this pressure to build so many hours, and I can only imagine in this environment that Megan was talking about where it's even more competitive, um, it's, it's a lot of pressure to keep up. So what this leads to is to mental health issues, burnout, substance abuse issues. Many lawyers have admitted to using Adderall and other types of substances to be able to basically not sleep in order to get all the work done. And also on the other side, um, it leaves little time for other types of work that is valuable, like mentoring or even some sorts of pro bono work. And then there's the diversity issues that you were talking about, David. It's um, especially when we talk about gender, for example, women who typically, in the way our society works, end up being the primary caretakers if if they don't have the support systems in place to to help them keep up with the demands at work and at home, it it's it's just impossible. Finally, uh, let's talk about why the billable hour is still around, even though everyone seemingly hates it. Um, you know, it's it because the alternatives are not that much better. Look, you went, did a great job in the video of, of going into that. What are the alternatives, and why do they kind of not quite work? So there's there's a lot of alternative fee arrangements. Um, I went into two of them that I thought were uh, interesting and, and good examples. We chose to talk about contingent fees and fixed fees. So fixed fees are when you charge a set amount and contingent fees are a percentage uh, or some recovery of a success metric. So it would be, for example, 40% of the recovery of, by the plaintiff. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all seen kind of personal injury lawyers who say, like, you don't pay me unless you win, you know, or something like that. Exactly. It's more risky in a way, but it's also, there's big gains. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, is this a problem that can be solved? Because, you know, as you mentioned, those it would seem like those two other alternative fee structures could help, but also certainly, you know, are, have their downsides big time. Is it just that the nature of litigation or the nature of the legal industry writ large is so unpredictable that, that this is what we have to do? So I think that in reporting for this, ultimately I had to separate the issue in two parts. There's the billable hour as a billing system, and then there's the billable hour as an expectation as the expectation that law firms put on their lawyers. So the billable hour as a system itself, you know, it's open to interpretation, but it not it may not be the issue per se, because when we look at other firms that don't charge primarily with a billable hour, like Wachtell, Sussman Godfrey, um, they still work really hard. And yeah. they have some of the same issues that I mentioned before that um, lawyers have with a billable hour. All right. Well, that uh, was really fascinating. Thank you for talking. That was Macarena Carrizosa and Megan Tribe talking with us about 
the legal industry. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, David. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.